Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Good Life EDU podcast. Today we have a special episode for you that will kick off a series of episodes focused on highlighting the great work being done by our ESU colleagues statewide in support of Nebraska education. Each week of this series, we'll focus on a different topic and then chat with staff members from three different ESUs to look at how we are all invested in similar work, but strive to specialize in supporting the immediate needs of the regions, districts, and schools we serve. In this first episode on the topic of technology, you'll get a sense of how ESU support not only instructional practices in the classroom, but school systems, communication, and even help with keeping our students safe when they are learning online. In closing, we want to say a special thanks to Jason Everett at ESU 10 for this great idea, and we hope you enjoy this look into the work we do as ESUs. Also, if you like the show, we'd appreciate your support by following, rating, or leaving a review for us, uh, as all those efforts help to amplify the stories and communication that this pod is dedicated to sharing. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I'm joined today by Lynn Herr of ESU6. She's a technology professional development consultant there. And this is going to be part one of a three-segment podcast here on our ESU Network's statewide role in supporting technology for districts, schools, and teachers. Uh, And so I'm really grateful for this first conversation with Lynn, uh, where we're going to focus in on really what our tech integrationists do and how uh, we really try to... Uh, do our best to support that learning that's going on in our schools and really our teachers as, as they leverage technology to enhance best practices in the classroom. So uh, with that being said, Lynn, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It's yeah. great to be here. Uh, and I always appreciate when we get a chance to chat because I learned so much from you. And so thank you for taking your time to share some of your expertise. And for people who don't know what it is to be a tech integrationist or what someone might do in that role here in our ESU network, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about that to begin with? Yes, I'd love to. I think my perspective is uh, one of the best ones, I think, in terms of where I came in history in the use of technology in education. I was a technology director beginning in 1997 for the Waverly School District, one of the schools in ESU 6, at the time that the internet had just been installed in the school. A network uh, had been installed over the summer. I started there in August. And I got to learn from being in the technology director role or coordinator role, uh, both the hardware and software side of things, because it was very early in the use of technology in schools, networked technology. I would say, you know, the Oregon Trail has been around for a long time, but we could not just go online and find any resources back then. So in that 10 years, I saw that you really, it became two jobs. You really had to know a lot about the hardware servers, keeping everything safe and running. And then you also needed to be able to support teachers in how they used all of that technology that schools were investing in to benefit students' education. And we had so many questions about, does it make a difference? Is it helping students learn? Is it helping them learn differently? So I feel like it's been a wonderful span to see how that has changed over time. So 
Now, 15 years ago, I went to ESU6 to be the technology professional development consultant where I could focus 100% of my time on supporting educators from paraprofessionals to office staff. I work with office staff in schools too, uh, up to superintendents, teachers, counselors, anyone in a school that uses technology. How can we use technology to be more productive, more efficient as educators? How can we use technology tools to facilitate learning for students, whether that's differentiation, language translation, if it allows more efficient management of their work inside and outside the classroom. So I really feel like this is one of the best jobs anyone could have in the world and feel very blessed to be in this role. Uh, well, and in hearing you talk about that there, you can tell that there has been such a history of needing to learn and to grow as new technology comes up and as the needs shift in terms of what that integration looks like. It really speaks to just that ongoing professional development that has to happen. And I think that it's terrific that the ESUs have those roles out there because for the classroom teacher, that's really tough to keep up with all these different things. And so for there to be uh, experts like yourself who have made a career out of this, to be able to go in and support and uh, keep one eye, I guess, up and looking to what's next, uh, what's now and what's next. Maybe it'd be the two things I would say with that. Is it, is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's a great way to phrase it. And if we go back to when we started using technology early in the process, we had a lot of substitution. There are a lot of models that describe how we use technology in education and some of the basic levels are substituting. So instead of handing students a piece of paper, we could give them a digital assignment, basically asking them to do the same thing, but it was digital. We gained a little bit of efficiency in that substitution, but we didn't really get deeper learning, but we also didn't have the capabilities with technology back then to do much beyond that. When we got the ability to do multimedia, and back in that time, Hyper Studio really was a game changer in education because it gave us the chance to use audio, video, images, and text, engaging all of those parts in the brain to allow students to show what they know in ways that were not paper and pencil exams, which we didn't have a lot of options prior to technologies infusion everywhere to do those kinds of projects. So. In my role as a tech integrationist, and I'm blessed to be able to serve the NIDA board and coordinate our statewide meeting of school and ESU tech integrationists, our job is to take the technology that we have, invest the time in curating resources that already exist for teachers, combing through the parts that aren't worth your time so that teachers aren't spending their time on that, and really kind of applying our experience and judgment in choosing tools that are most efficient, most effective, and that are fairly easy for teachers to incorporate into their already wonderful toolboxes that they have for how they address instruction with all kinds of students. So it's a job that changes, I think, daily. Um, it's a job that if you're on vacation for a week, you come back behind because there may have been some new extension or tool released while you were gone that you've got to catch up. So it does require constant attention to what's coming out and what's new. And I think that most of us in this position love that part about the job is that 
not only do we get to learn something new, we have to learn something new. And I have that insatiable need for uh, learning new things all the time. And I think a lot of people in this role feel the same way about that. Gosh, well, I can tell just from, uh, and I know this is uh, audio only, but just the smile that came to your face and just talking about that, <laughs> right? That cycle of being able yes. to invest in, in that continual learning about what's next is inspiring to me. And I share a similar passion for it. And it's just really great to connect with you about this. And so I would ask, and I'm going to press into that further and just say, so then what, mm-hmm. what you just shared here is kind of the longitudinal history of how this role has evolved in the way in which you had to think about what that means to support education and learning with that. So let's kind of like focus in on now, right? Like, so let's say okay. like at this moment in time, what are you seeing? Well, it's certainly been an interesting two years since um, school was closed that fourth quarter uh, of 2020. We've really seen so much happen in the world of technology. Uh, When we came back from spring break, for the most part, not knowing we would not be in school for the rest of that quarter when the pandemic started, we saw really two scenarios in schools. Schools that had invested in both hardware and access for students and invested in teacher training from people like me, from people in their own districts, had a little bit of a better start toward branching into what do we do next? For people like me in these positions, it was probably one of the darkest times for our society and one of the brightest times for tech integrationists because suddenly, everyone needed to know how to use the technology tools because they needed them that day, where sometimes in our positions, uh, we come into PD and they say, well, I already have a way of doing this that's working for me. Why should I learn another way? So we address that sometimes in these positions. But during that period of time, there was no buy-in that we had to really work on to uh, get people. And so I think a lot of people suddenly realized the true power of how technology could help. Now, if we fast forward to today, we've kind of come in a circle in that where people had technology overload from that time. So I think all of us in these tech integration positions have never said, It's technology always, all the time, and technology is always the best way of doing things. I don't know anyone who's a tech integrationist who would say that. I think the power is figuring out what are the places in instruction that it fits, and it fits better than any other tool we have. So, for example, in classroom management, if I have a situation going on with a student, I draw on my teacher experience to what tool may work in this scenario better than another. And I'll try that. If that didn't work, I'll go to the next tool and try that. Where with technology integration, to me, one of the things that we can do are things that we could not allow students to do without it. So if you think back to a lot of people listening to this, for example, could have been in school where a lot of it was paper and pencil based. You could not just decide to create a song to show what you know instead of writing an essay. It would have been very difficult to do that. Now we have those tools that allow students to show what they've learned and engage with the content in ways that we just could not do without the technology tools available. So deciding, should I have every student produce the same product of something at the end, or can I decide what are my learning goals in an assignment and give students all the options they need to meet those learning goals 
so that then we get a variety that we can all learn from. I think that's also been a powerful thing with technology is that students have the power to create resources for learning about their content or even just about the world and sharing those with students all over the world so that we have a much flatter structure in terms of where does the knowledge come from, uh, not just the teacher in the classroom or back in my childhood, the world book encyclopedia that my parents invested in. Um, but we can get that knowledge from each other. We can challenge each other through social media. We have all of those options to go deeper with learning and broader at the same time. Yeah, and I love all of that. And as you were sharing that too, it made me think about some of these choice product opportunities when teachers even give those that with YouTube, you as the teacher no longer have to be the one to teach them how to be artistic or how to edit a video uh, because those resources exist and they're out there and accessible and there's a myriad of those. Uh, and so doing what you just said there about letting them demonstrate their knowledge in a way that's specific to them or that they would like to pursue is overwhelming to you. I think that we can turn to technology also <laughs> to be another voice yes. that, to fill in those places where we don't necessarily have the time or the expertise. Right. I think what it comes back to is educators know, how do I know that a student has learned this? That's something that teachers work on all the time. So what is the evidence that a student has mastered a standard or a learning goal or whatever it is that they're working on? And we think of that not necessarily in terms now of one product, but in an array of products um, that students could produce to demonstrate that learning. And I think that benefits everybody. So part of my job as a tech integrationist is to at least get teachers thinking about that. Because as you said, I think we're a step away from teachers having to know every technology tool. And it allows students to bring their own knowledge of that to the classroom. What the students don't always have is how to discern that content knowledge and how to show what you know and how to produce something that is credible, that is well-researched, that uh, really allows you to show what you know. And that's what the teacher can bring to the process. Um, so it's kind of that full circle again. We did a lot of teaching teachers to use technology so that they could teach their students. I think a lot of that we're doing now is more of a thinking process about education and how can we allow the tools that are out there to be present in our classroom in productive ways versus distracting ways. Well, and as you're talking there, it made me want to follow up here and ask, what are some tools, since we're talking about the moment right now, uh, what are some tools that you've recently come across or seen leveraged maybe in a unique way? Uh, just one or, or two here as we kind of round out this segment. Sure. Well, all of my schools are Google for Education schools. For many years, you know, Chromebooks made one-to-one -one technology more accessible in most of our school districts. Some of our school districts use one platform or another, but we're all using the Google Workspace for Education tools across the state. And prior to the last couple of years, for example, I think Google Slides, many people saw as a PowerPoint substitute, a way of presenting information where you stand next to a screen or you're looking at the screen and you bring the bulleted points up and, and do that. I think we learned to use that as what I tell teachers, an instructional canvas now. I think it's rare that anyone's using slides to lecture anymore, but more in the design elements that you can create in slides from templates that make things more engaging for students and more efficient for teachers to 
being able to create books. Because if you think about things we used to do in a word processing document, if I said, go to page four and you've changed the fonts and you're trying to scroll up and down the window to find page four, we're not all going to end up in the same place. But if you make the orientation of a slide, eight and a half by 11 vertical, as if it's a notebook page, we can all say, go to page 10 and we're all on page 10. So it's a very low level tool in terms of, it could be used as substitution, but that design element that we can incorporate with that audio, video, linking to other content, recording things on those pages with a tool that we already were familiar with. I think that's been an interesting thing to see just that explosion of how we're using what was, I would say kind of an old school, um, old instructional model of Sage on the Stage type of tool to a really collaborative, integrative tool that we can use to showcase learning and provide learning resources that can be used both in the physical classroom and in the virtual classroom across the board. Well, and to support that point, our PD for me mailers that we've been sending out, we're all made in Google Slides. The the front yes. and back and, and the content across those, because you can, you can manipulate those images. Uh, it allows us to share and to be able to copy paste from other examples. And it uh, has been something that has had its benefit in the physical space as you're talking about there. Right. And if you needed to print it, you know, for example, we have some students who would really want those printed. You can make those pages so that they fit into a binder if they needed that for some accommodation. And I think that's a great example of what you just mentioned, because earlier in my career, if I was wanting to do what you described, where I wanted to create a resource that I designed for teachers and, and sent out to them, I would probably have to have fairly in-depth training on something like Adobe PageMaker or InDesign or Photoshop that were not really accessible in terms of the amount of skill and time you had to invest on getting the skill level you needed to do those tools, where now, because you know your basics around Google Docs or Microsoft Word or whatever, it's maybe 10 more minutes of practice to create what you just described, Andrew, in terms of those resources in slides that you can uh, get out to people. So I think it's just made technology resources more easily accessible to more teachers and students everywhere. Uh, absolutely. And it's something that exposure brings about a vision for how to leverage those in those new ways as well. Right. And so I love right. uh, thinking about too, as a follow-up to that choice and product opportunity is to just like Take those examples and, and let your learner see it. Uh, if it's within a staff, you know, give some space during your next meeting for someone who's done something kind of creative, cool with like a Google Slides or anything for that matter. Like we don't even know what's possible sometimes until we see somebody else having done it. And I think that's what uniquely positions the tech integrationists because you get a chance to go to different schools and carry those ideas and, and we can benefit across Nebraska together because of that all the way back up the chain that you sort of walked us through uh, over the course of our conversation today, right? You can kind of learn from the classroom level, I would imagine, right. and take that back to the state level. Oh, absolutely. And I think the whole remix culture that we have benefits everybody because teachers are such generous sharing people that when I create this resource and share it with you, you can go in and change three things to customize it and make it yours. And you don't have to start from the beginning every time. So those tools allow us to take the best of someone else's work 
add our own work and have a new product at the end that is better for everybody instead of all of us creating everything from the beginning. So I think that has also been an important piece is that remix piece. Uh, I have one other thing, if that's okay to share and you can decide where this fits. I think this time has also shown us the tools that are built into things like Google Slides or just the Chrome web browser, for example, that make learning resources accessible to more students. For example, a Chrome extension called Immersive Reader Experience for Chrome allows any web page that a student can highlight anything that they see in Chrome and it will read it to them. It will show them all the parts of speech if the teacher turns that on. Those kinds of tools that, or clear the clutter off of a web page, tools that let us skip the ads in a YouTube video, um, little tools that have a lot of punch in terms of instruction being accessible and useful to as many students as possible. So I think that's been an important thing during this time as well. Gosh, Lynn, I so appreciate when we get a chance to chat because you always have so many great ideas and it's tough to house them all here in a 15 minute window of time, which is why I'm actually going to ask uh, that you come back for our SEL wellness pod that we're going to do as a follow up to this one. But for the space that we've had today, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your ideas, for taking some time to, to share those out yeah, with others. And coming up next here, we're going to have Shara Johnson of ESU2, who's been doing a lot with Canvas and that as a statewide LMS purchase. And so definitely looking forward to that because I know, Lynn, you do a lot of work with LMS as well. Yes, we do. Yes. And we're in the process right now where we have schools using Google Classroom. We have schools that have signed on for the statewide Canvas project, if that best met their needs. So again, it allows us as regional expertise to be able to support local decisions that schools make in what's best for them. And I think that's the whole spirit of educational service units is that we are there as people with expertise in a particular area, but our job is really to support schools in the vision they determine for their schools. So we can help guide that, but we're also really there to support the decision that that local team makes and making sure it's as successful as it could possibly be. Could not have said it better myself. So thank you so much, Lynn, uh, for kicking off this tech pod for us. And now we'll learn a little bit more about Canvas. All right, here we are for part two of this three-part podcast on technology. And I'm really excited uh, for the opportunity to visit with Shara Johnson of ESU2, also of Canvas, as we're going to talk a little bit about Canvas today uh, during the pandemic the Department of Education invested in Canvas, helping to reduce the seat cost for students, which really led to a solid statewide level of implementation that is ongoing. And so we wanted to take this middle section of today's pod as an opportunity to update you on where that work stands, what we're seeing in terms of the benefits from that, and also some things to consider uh, with your own implementation, should you be interested in adopting Canvas as your LMS. So Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, give us an update. Where do things stand with regards to Canvas usage and really the Canvas consortium statewide? Yeah, it's been crazy since the pandemic came on. Um, Canvas has been a widely used term in Nebraska. It already was because all of our state universities use Canvas. A lot of our state colleges, 
community colleges. So it's been a really nice transition for our K-12 population to move that way as well. Um, we currently have 141 districts that are part of the consortium here in Nebraska. And that's really a combined effort between NDE. I know that ESU2 and ESUCC is involved in that as well, but together we're tr trying to provide services for those schools. Currently, we're still having people, if they're interested in coming onto the consortium, they're welcome to join. Uh, the beautiful part about this is that NDE is covering the cost of implementation. So there is no implementation cost. It's just a seat cost, which is $3 a seat. And so if people are interested in joining, they still can. And I know a lot of our schools, their contracts are coming up shortly which means they can easily transition into the consortium and you get some added benefits when you do that. You get tier one support, which means 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can call, chat, and report a problem with Canvas. So that's part of the consortium, um, as well as you have access to my team to come and provide personal professional development. We can come to your school to do coaching. We can work with teachers one-on-one. -on -one. We can work whole group, small group, whatever. And we provide a lot of resources that way too, as a part of the consortium. So if anybody's interested in joining, they can reach out to my office. We have an easy email address. It's necanvas at esu2.org. And Heather will hook them up and get them information. But we definitely are still encouraging people to join at this low, low price. It's awesome. Yeah, I know for that $3 per seat cost, isn't that about half of what it would normally be? Depending on where you are regionally, mm -hmm. who your salesperson is, I think that's debatable. I don't really know. But but the implementation fee is what the huge savings is, is because that can range if it's an independent implementation or if you're in a cohort, that can be anywhere from $3,000 to $10,000 a district. So that's a huge savings for our schools. So it sounds like there's been quite a few schools that have onboarded to Canvas through the Canvas Consortium, and thanks for sharing the web address there. Uh, if you would, maybe kind of speak a little bit to what some of those schools are seeing. I, I know you said you and your team have been really busy in supportive schools, and so what are some of those kind of boots on the ground lessons that you're learning right now that you're seeing as maybe even like benefits, for example, that the schools are noting that have started to use Canvas? Yeah. So we've been all over the state. I have a team that's, I have three individuals that work with me, Heather, Tammy, and Adam, who are all awesome. And we've all been working in schools. And um, we did a ton of stuff this summer, this fall. And basically at this point, we're doing a lot of whole group PD, getting people in, getting them comfortable. We have a lot of brand new schools. So trying to create that buy-in. Um, I love it when we get to work with admin teams first. Uh, when we get to really work with an admin team to establish some norms before we go in to work with the schools and work with the teachers. But I've had some great experiences this fall of teachers just really being excited when we leave. And, you know, I'm reminded, I always tell people, Canvas is not a pandemic solution. I know that a lot of people think it's a fix for the moment. It's an everyday solution. I have twin juniors. They were in school two days last week two days. They were at a college visit on Monday. They were at land judging and they were at quiz bowl and they missed so much school last week. And, and it's great. That's a beautiful thing about being in a small town. You get to be overly involved. <laughs> However, it's also problematic because you're missing a lot of school. So I was just reminded last week how canvas is really a great tool for us every single day, whether we're in a pandemic or not. So I'm hoping a lot of these schools are seeing the advantages. I've also really appreciated recently. I was working with a school and they were Google school, which is great. They were using Google Classroom and they reminded me of how user-friendly Canvas is. And so that was just reiterated again and again that day it was like, oh, this is easy. Oh, I didn't know it could do this. And I'm like, 
Yes. Um, so I love it when teachers get excited about the possibilities and what's possible and that learning can really happen beyond the classroom walls, right? And kids can have some choice and voice and have some capabilities to kind of control the pace in which they move through content. And so it's been fun to see teachers kind of get to play with that and, and start investigating and learning about those tools. Yeah. And I think for so many of us that maybe have taken a, a master's class or a grad class or something since they've been in college where your experience maybe with an LMS has always just been sort of this digital pinup board where you're going to go and post an assignment and it just kind of hangs there with a date on it that you can then get as a late copy, right? Or, or find out what was due when and a place to submit it. And anymore, like you said, you facilitate entire learning experiences online there. And it is just a great place to, to house so many of those things. And uh, to play off of one of the things that you mentioned there when you're talking about Google Classroom, the integration uh, from a number of different technologies that Canvas works well with is part of the appeal to it. Am I right? Like, because that's it. People are a little tentative maybe sometimes. I don't want to go through the onboarding process of shifting from what I'm familiar with to something new. Yeah, it's an ecosystem. So it's not like a separate platform. We like to think of it as an ecosystem. I'm actually taking a class right now through Canvas as a student. And my assignment this week was a Flipgrid assignment. I had to post a video about what it's a, it's a teaching class. So I was planning a lesson in a unit and I had to basically post a video about what this looks like conceptually before I build it. Um, and it was Flipgrid. Flipgrid works right inside of Canvas, as does Google. And so does Microsoft Office. Um, all of these integrations we can leverage so students don't have to go away from Canvas. I was visiting with my niece this weekend. She's an interior designing student at Wayne. And she mentioned all of her Cengage things that her from her textbook, she accesses through Canvas. So her teacher creates the modules in Canvas, but it really utilizes that technology that's outside of Canvas. Kids don't know the difference. They come from one place, they're launched into another place. And so all of these integrations are just added on. It's like, just like the, it's like the cherry on top of the Sunday. You can use Nearpod, you can use Flipgrid, you can use Edpuzzle. I just think of all the ones that we're using. And in addition to, if you're a Turnitin school, works with Canvas. Um, if you're a Respondus lockdown browser, works with Canvas. So a lot of these third-party integrations have applications. And so we want to make sure that we're utilizing those as well, because there's great native Canvas tools. You know, there's a lot of native things that work well, but there are a lot of things that work in addition that just bolster its capabilities. It's really, really a phenomenal, like I said, ecosystem that allows us to launch kids into different places. And this works with uh, District Sys as well, right? Yeah, so there's PowerSchool, Infinite Campus Integration. I know we have a lot of schools that use other things like JMC, those kind of things. Depending on what your SIS is, um, that integration allows for provisioning, which means students get enrolled, classes get created, terms get created. We don't have to do any of that manually. Um, in addition, a lot of our teachers are really appreciating the benefit of grade passback, which means we don't have to put grades in PowerSchool anymore. Uh, we can just grade inside of Canvas. And as I'm grading a student's work, it automatically syncs and creates that in PowerSchool. So there's some time savings there as well, but those things also just make it appealing to teachers. So seamless. And I would harken back to something else you mentioned earlier too, which is the admin piece. Uh, and before we got on the pod today, you were talking a little bit about the support that you've been providing recently with those administrators. And so can you kind of give us some of the things that you've gleaned from that conversation about what makes for an, a successful implementation? Yeah. So one of my favorite things is when a school really starts at the admin level, because I, I was just mentioning, you know, you can say we use Canvas. 
And, and you might say, what that could mean like 55 different things. Like when you t- tell me that it's teachers using Canvas, it could be that they're just posting what they're doing every day. Um, it could be that they're using it for station rotation or blended learning, or they're teaching completely online. It could mean so many different things. So I love it when um, an admin team gets together and they really clarify what does it mean to use Canvas in our district? And I call those Canvas agreements. So these are the things we're going to agree exclusively, myself as an administrator, you as a faculty member, we are going to agree that when we say we use Canvas, these are the things that we're ensuring are happening. Um, And that goes down to course design, that goes into content curation, um, it even goes into communication, like how are we going to utilize the tools to communicate with students and parents. But having that common language is something I think is really important. So when you're coaching a teacher or when I'm in your district coaching a teacher, I know this is how we do Canvas in this district. It is essential that we are all doing X, Y, and Z, and that we're all making sure that we're putting the student first. And these are the things that we're going to do to guarantee that that's happening. A lot of schools will just say, ah, go forth and prosper. Great. But now you have kids with experiencing lots of inconsistencies and it's, it's more stressful than it is now easy and inviting. It's now creating some anxiety. And so we want to make sure that we're reducing anxiety. And by doing that, we can have those agreements from that administrative team is just super helpful. In addition, there's something called the fundamental five that that helps teachers to kind of think about how they're building content. And it's just another layer that you can put on top of that to really start thinking about, okay, we want to use this tool in a way that is really increasing engagement. And we want to also for students to not feel stressed. We want them to know what they're supposed to be doing every day. We want them to feel like this is a place that they can go to their ecosystem to be successful. So yeah, administration is huge. All right. And now, because I know I've heard you talk about the fundamental five before, I'm going to ask, this would be very broad strokes. And I know that you have a YouTube channel as well, right? Where you have some of this information housed. Yes, there I do the Canvas enthusiast. I have some Canvas enthusiast stuff. I also lead some PD for Canvas as a company um, that we talk a lot about the fundamental five. Yeah, could you give us just kind of an overview of what those are? Uh, yeah. Maybe 30,000 feet? Sure. So basically the fundamental five are questions that you should be asking as a teacher when you're building your Canvas content, you should be thinking from a student's perspective. So if you look at your course and you're like, okay, if I'm looking at my course as a student, do I know, question number one is, what am I supposed to be doing? Seems pretty simple, but do students know when they come to your class what they're supposed to be doing? Um, number two is when is it due? So are we creating due dates? My niece just mentioned this this weekend. She said a teacher, an instructor forgot to put a due date. She didn't do it. She got in trouble. She's like, I didn't know it was due. So you have to use due dates because it helps the kids stay on task. Number three is can I get help? If I need help, where do I go to get help? So is there protocols in place that allows me to have a channel or a procedure for if I need assistance? Number four, how did I do? Canvas has amazing feedback tools, speed grader, rubrics. We can leave video feedback. We can leave audio feedback. We can leave written feedback all in one space. So telling students how they did on an assignment is really important. Um, I'm taking a class right now. I just got an assignment returned to me telling me I didn't meet all the criteria. Thank you, Jim Wolf, for being patient, by the way. So I went back through and I just hadn't highlighted the way that I was using the integration. So I went back and highlighted it and I resubmitted it, but that was really helpful for my learning. And then lastly, number five is what more can I do? And that one isn't really like, oh, please give me more work. That's not what we want. It's more like, can we really use the system 
to provide voice and choice for kids so that they can show what they know in a way that works for them. So I don't do well writing, but I'm pretty good at making like a video or a speech or an infographic. The written word just isn't my gift, but it might be somebody else's. So if if you're trying to show mastery of a concept, can I do that in a way that I can really shine? And Canvas allows you to do that. So those are the five questions essentially, but we just want to think about our courses through those five questions and make sure we're answering them um, so that kids are successful. Sarah, thank you so much for uh, taking a little time today to talk to us about the Canvas Consortium. We covered so much in like 10, 15 minutes time there, everything from the state level down to what teachers should consider in support of their students and that teacher clarity piece. So really appreciate your time and your advocacy for this and the hard work that you and your team at ESU too are doing on behalf of all of our districts statewide. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate that. All right. And for part three of today's podcast, I'm grateful to Bill Pulte of ESU3 for joining us to talk a little bit about cybersecurity. And if you didn't get an opportunity to catch our earlier pod where uh, we really did a deep dive on this topic around the end of July this past summer, uh, I would highly recommend that you go do that. Because I, as I was sharing with Bill just a moment ago, find myself in conversations about cybersecurity. And as people share things, I'm like, oh, yeah, Bill talked about that in the pod. Uh, I definitely learned a lot from that conversation. And so uh, I'm grateful to Bill for taking a little bit more time to jump back on here for what we might just call like a little revisiting of that content, but kind of the 2.0 and getting an update for where that work stands at this time. So, Bill, thanks for joining us for today's pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And so what's going on? I guess maybe like frame for those that might have missed that first conversation, really just across the state. I know you're invested in that work in terms of uh, cybersecurity and the support that the ESUs are providing our districts to make sure that their students' information is safe. Yeah. So this is one of these things that IT directors for years have been talking about student data and cybersecurity and, and a number of those types of things. And it hasn't gotten a ton of traction. There's been a lot of talk about what can we do from an IT standpoint and stuff. And the, the podcast we did in July was perfect because the timing on it was right around when Alleycap sent out their survey around cybersecurity. And it started to get attention now with superintendents a little bit more. It started to get attention of business leaders and stuff like that in districts. And so it, it was really a great time to have that conversation. And what we've found or what I've found over the last couple of months with our districts here is that there is a renewed sense of urgency around some of these topics, not just with IT leaders, but with other leaders in districts. And so then we're getting questions as ESUs, hey, what can you do to help us from this standpoint? The other thing I think you're seeing is, is from the ESU CC and even NDE, they're saying, okay, what can we do to support these initiatives? We might have some federal dollars available we've got some of this here, what can we do to help support districts? So all of that over the last three months has has really come to the surface around conversations. And so it's exciting to be part of those conversations. Yeah. So take us maybe to that next level then in terms of when we're talking about these supports at NDE, and you mentioned financial support, for example, but in the pursuit of what, like, what do we need to allocate those funds for? Is, are we talking programs, training? So one of the big things that's been coming up is around uh, cybersecurity training, phishing training, things like that. I think that most people realize that you can harden your systems as much as you want, but you still have people in chairs who are sometimes letting things through. And what are we doing to train those individuals? You know, if you harden your system as much as you can, but somebody still opens an email 
and still clicks on attachment and still runs the macros and does all these other things, they've circumvented a lot of those things you've put in place. And so one of the big things we're seeing from ESUCC and at a statewide level is, okay, can we purchase some sort of training or some sort of cybersecurity or phishing campaign that could be used around the state? And so there are two companies, Proofpoint and Know Before, who are being evaluated. And we have several districts around the state who are using one of these two products, but probably 75% of the state, nobody's using a product like this. And so can we start doing some of those trainings? So those are a lot of the conversations we're having statewide, but then we've also got a lot of smaller things that are popping up ESU to ESU as well. Okay. And so those programs then are, as you said, specifically for training our staff and administrators to keep certain breaches from occurring. And so what does it look like with regard to the programs that are in place that actually put some of those frontline of defense walls up? Because I know when we spoke last, there was this balance that we're trying to strike between locking everything down to a point where students might struggle to access a YouTube video, for example, or to be able for a teacher to use a certain app. How do we kind of marry those two? And what, what are those conversations looking like as this conversation evolves? Yeah, that's the tough part. I, I think it was 10 years ago, I did a NIDA session and it was on security or usability because every time you make something a little bit more secure, using that software or using that product or using that technology becomes a little bit more difficult. And, and I don't think that these conversations are any different. It's trying to strike a balance between the two. You know, you look at the regular trainings you have to do every year for bloodborne pathogens or whatever it is you know, maybe this is just one more training you do at the beginning of the year. These products also have these where you, it's not a set training you do. It might be a phishing campaign. And if you happen to fall for the phishing campaign, now you're assigned to training. The interesting thing is because there's this renewed sense of, of urgency around this from all district leaders, I think we're starting to get more buy-in from superintendents and school boards and, and other places to say, okay, we can do this. And if they don't pass the phishing campaign, yes, I think it's completely reasonable that they do a 20-minute training on why they failed that. You would hope that year over year, teachers would get better at this. And so you might assign you know, 1,000 trainings the first year, and then you would hope that the next year it's only 500, and the year after that it's only 250. But you're absolutely right. I think that's always the, the thing that makes people nervous is we don't want to cut into teachers' time too much. We don't want to say, well, you're going to be spending all your time doing cybersecurity training, and so you can't do lesson plans. That's nobody's goal. You know, Teaching comes first, but we got to make sure that these other things are done too. And so I think each district is talking about how to strike that balance. Yeah, and I, I love that that's at the core of this conversation too. It's just an awareness that that is something that needs to be part of the conversation and great to hear you use the word balance uh, in the mm -hmm. midst of all that. So I appreciate getting the update for where we are with things right now. So where do you sort of see this moving forward as some of the, the next efforts? I know we kind of mentioned getting those trains, but what does that in terms of a rollout look like or, or timelines committing to these various programs getting districts the right information for them to even know that they exist. I mean, there, there's probably a lot of steps to this. Yeah. So from the ESU3 perspective, last week we had a meeting with our districts and I'm very pleased with how the meeting went. But what we did was districts came in and we just asked, okay, what is a topic on cybersecurity that, that you think is important? And then we wrote it on 
paper, we put it on the wall, and we ended up having about 14 different topics in there. The district said, hey, these are priority for us. And when what are some of those, for example? I mean, yeah, so um, uh, multi-factor authentication was on there, um, backup with air gapping and immutable backups, stuff like that were on there. The CISA reports that we're doing, which is the Homeland Security reports. So we had some big topics like that, but we also had districts who said, hey, I just need help with endpoint management, you know, so antivirus on computers, are we managing them through an MDM, you know, some of those types of things. So it ran the gamut of very high level items down to just, hey, what are we doing when a computer comes in? We, we spent a lot of time talking about account management. Uh, a new teacher comes in, you create the account, and then they say, well, I also need access to this system, and I need access to this system. And so you give those systems. The teacher leaves five years later. Does anybody remember to go back and take them out of all those systems? And so you know, it, it's something as simple as that. And I think every district struggles a little bit and that starts to get into the conversation around student data privacy and what systems are teachers going to sign up for that maybe they didn't run through a central office and are they sharing data out? And when they leave, who's making sure that all of that is taken down? Who's making sure that the account's gone? That becomes a little bit of the, the tricky part. So it was a wide range of things. But then we gave districts, what I really loved is we gave districts an opportunity to vote high, medium, low. And so we said, you get five high votes, five medium votes and five low votes. And then we could kind of see, okay, what are the most important things to our districts? And so for us, the multi-factor authentication, backup and DR and security monitoring were the three things that rose to the top. And so now as an ESU, we're saying, okay, we've got to focus on these three things. Our time, money, and effort needs to be spent over the next 12 to 18 months on these three items. And then we'll start chunking away at some of the other things. But if another ESU did the exact same thing with their districts, it might look a little bit different for them. And so that's kind of where we are. We're trying to balance what the state's doing for some of this stuff with what our districts need and try to get best of both worlds. Well, and that's what I love about this series uh, is that we're kind of taking a look at how each ESU is responsive to the districts that they serve and how that can look a little bit different across the state. But at the same time, as you mentioned there, I'm sure with that list of 15 or 16 different topics, I'm sure that those are pretty widespread and things that we can all benefit from having conversations around and learning from each other and our support. So grateful for you taking a little bit of time to talk about that today. I'm going to ask about one of those then in the interest of time, but we spoke in the last podcast too about that uh, multi-factor authentication and the idea of that could be a little tedious for uh, a seven-year-old like my son uh, right. in second grade to have to do that for the various things that he might have in terms of apps, programs, et cetera, on his iPad at school. So uh, has there been any more conversations about what that might look like functionally, I guess, um, or where are we at with things? So one of the things we talked to the insurance company about is, is what if you have a walled garden around your students? And so what a walled garden is, it means that the students can't receive email from outside, they can't send to outside. And so we got very good feedback to say, okay, that would meet the requirement and you wouldn't have to have multi-factor set up on the students. The thing I think is interesting about that, and I hope if any insurance people are listening, they can jump off now, but I think that that's got, <laughs> I think that's got consequences that they're not thinking about. Because I heard from at least one district who said, well, we're going to set up a walled garden. And then our high school students who are applying for scholarships 
we're going to tell them to go just sign up for a free email account and then we'll let them access that in the district. So what you've done is you've you've made yourself less secure because now they're using a personal account that you have no control over. You you can't search it. You can't. I mean, so I think that's an unintended consequence, but I think it's a way that people are getting around some of this is to say, OK, we're going to create this walled garden here and then we'll just tell kids to go get a personal account and use that in the district as well. So I, I wish insurance companies would be more responsive to what we're seeing in districts. Unfortunately, they're not. And so we've got to have these conversations internally about what's best and just doing what's best. Well, and I love the heart behind that. And that's why I certainly wanted to uh to ask you back on to give us a little bit of an update. Is there anything, and then this will be my last question, <laughs> anything that I've not asked or that we've not talked about that you feel like would be uh, prudent to share at this time? The only thing I would share is I think everybody knows that this is, uh, you know, you go back to the alley cap thing. They gave us everybody three weeks to reply to this. And then they said, oh, they're going to take two weeks. This is not something you solve in three weeks. I mean, cybersecurity is going to be an ongoing thing forever. We're taking it, you know, I, I, I'm the king of cliches. We're going to eat this elephant one bite at a time. And so that's what why we did our list. That's why we did that meeting last week. We need to know what the first bite looks like internally. And then we're going to start chunking it off. I don't want to be doing these things just to check a box on an insurance form. I mean, that's a reason to do them, but I don't think it's the best reason to do it. The best reason to do it is because we're trying to make our network as secure as possible and we're trying to protect student data and staff data and parent data to some degree so yeah that's doing it for the right reasons is important to me see and again this is why i invited you on because uh, you are a fine example of what our esu network is really full of which is people that are doing work that might for many people in education be behind the scenes that is certainly benefiting all stakeholders from the students to the staff to the administrators to the parents and the community yeah. member yeah right and uh, and work that uh, so many of us are not versed in enough uh, to look out for that and we need advocates like you in those positions and so I'm really grateful for you sharing today uh, to get this word out and for all that you're doing with because this is an uh, ongoing and probably a pretty intense conversation <laughs> Um, and so thank you so much for your support. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'll, I always enjoy coming on with you, Andrew, and, and getting to discuss these topics. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah, for sure. And more as it develops. So uh, yep. thanks to everybody for tuning in for this whole pod and look forward to more in this series as we focus on different topics uh, across the state, like social emotional learning and also special education uh, amongst others. And so thanks. Make sure you check it out next week. 